and teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, we are grateful that each Sunday we are given the privilege to gather together to to worship you corporately and just the joy as we sing to our great God, to your name, Lord, and to glorify you. Lord, you've given us your word so that we may know how to do that. And I pray again, Lord, please give us understanding. May your spirit be at work in us. Give us illumination and, and ability to know what you are saying and, and, Lord, how it applies to each of us in our various situations in life. Lord, bring encouragement to those who are struggling Lord, admonish those who, uh, Lord, are, need to be warned from the path they're on. And, and, Lord, for those who don't know you, may you bring life to them this morning. We pray these things in the name of our dear Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, legend is told of a very poor man named Midas who lived in ancient uh, Phrygia. Phrygia that's uh, something that, a place that was mentioned earlier in Acts 2. That is now a western region of Turkey. Uh, Midas lived in a time of civil unrest and strife uh, within various factions that lived in his day. He lived in a time uh, probably about the, in the ninth century, late ninth century. And one day the leaders of the factions uh, had gotten together. And they had been discussing one of the prophecies or oracles that had circulated in their time. And that was their, that, that a man would come to bring peace to the land, to bring harmony among the various factions. And the, the prophecy or the oracle said that uh, this man would be coming riding into town on an ox-driven cart. Well, it just so happens that on that same day of the meeting, Midas entered that town, and he entered it on top of an ox cart. And so the people saw it. They also saw the sign of an eagle that was hovering over him and landed on the cart. And so they made Midas king. And in gratitude of, of the honor and the, the wealth that was bestowed upon him, Midas then erected a shrine in honor of the god Zeus, and he put it in the center of town. And the shrine was that ox cart, and he tied that ox cart to a pole. And what was unique about this shrine was the rope and the way in which he tied this cart to the pole. He, he tied it with a massive number of intertwining layers and, and interwoven strands of this rope on the pole, and the ends of the rope were hidden inside the bundle. And so it actually became something very difficult to untie, for it was made of a form of bark that eventually hardened. Over time, this shrine in the center of town became a fixture, became a fixture in the city of Gordium. Many came and tried to untie the knot, but to no avail. Eventually, a prophecy circulated regarding this knot, that if anyone could unravel the knot, that person would rule Asia. Well, century after century came and went, and no one was able to unravel the puzzle. Eventually, uh, what became, a Gord- became called a Gordian knot was, was, uh, became a proverb for something that's unsolvable. One day in the late 4th century, a young military commander entered Gordium to stay there for the winter. He was the son of Philip II, king of Macedonia. And upon hearing of this legend of the Gordian knot, he decided he wanted to solve it. And so he went and spent much time but made little progress. Eventually, in frustration, this military commander lifted his sword and struck the knot, splitting it open and revealing the two ends of the rope. And with that, he was able to unravel it. 
There's another version of the story that circulates that says the young commander didn't strike it with a sword, but actually just took the peg out on which the knot was being held. But either way, he had solved the riddle of the Gordian knot by thinking outside of the box. Uh, By the way, that young man's name was Alexander the Great. Well, today we have before us one of the great Gordian knots of Scripture, one that has challenged interpreters for centuries. For we find it in Acts 2, Jim read from it earlier, and we find it particularly in the quote that uh, Peter gives, quoting from Joel 2. Turn with me again back to Acts 2. I want to read a section of that one more time. Acts 2, again, as Jim mentioned, takes place about 10 days after Jesus had ascended into heaven and Christ's followers, 120 in all, had been gathered in Jerusalem and were there waiting. And while they were waiting, the Feast of Pentecost came. And at that too came the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Pentecost. And he came with a, a violent rushing wind or the noise of a rushing wind. And Christ's followers began to speak then in languages that were not their own. They spoke clearly and lucidly about the great works of God. And as Jim had pointed out to us earlier, some people in the crowd were amazed. Others were perplexed. And still others accused them uh, that they had hit the local bars rather early that day. And that's when Peter seizes the moment. He tells the crowd, nobody's been drinking here. And he offers them another explanation. Let's read again what Peter said, beginning in verse 16 of Acts chapter 2. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Peter here quotes almost verbatim from the Greek translation of Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. And at first blush, it seems as Peter is simply stating that what Joel predicted about the coming of the Holy Spirit had now been fulfilled. But the thing is, is if you do a closer examination of Acts chapter 2 and the events that had taken place there and that would take place shortly after what Peter said, we notice that they don't exactly match what Joel predicted. In fact, notice Joel speaks of the Spirit being poured out on all mankind. But here at Pentecost, only upon the 120 was he poured out. And then later, 3,000 that day, but not everyone. Joel said that all prophesied. But in the early church, not everyone was given the gift of prophecy. Joel speaks of the great wonders in the sky, yet none of these are seen at Pentecost. The sky did turn black and dark at the crucifixion that took place 50 days earlier, but the moon was still fine. Uh, There was no blood or fire or smoke to speak of, which are all uh, signs of war. Also, he mentions here in verse 20, the day of the Lord. He quotes Joel speaking of that. Joel described that as a day of great judgment that would come upon the nations, right? We're going to talk about that next week as we look at Joel 3. But Rome was still in power. God had not brought judgment upon them. We don't see everything or everyone having visions or dreams like are mentioned here. Most are later in Acts and mainly with Peter or Paul. And in Joel's, Joel's prophecy, we see nothing of this rushing wind or noise of rushing wind or people speaking in foreign tongues that they did not learn on their own. So why does Peter 
seem to be claiming here that the prophecy that doesn't match completely, or why does he seem to be claiming it's a fulfillment of a prophecy when the things around him don't exactly match that prophecy? Some have said, well, that's because Peter misquoted Joel. He botched it. What do you guys think of that one? No, eh, no way, right? The Holy Spirit was behind Peter's sermon here, and the Holy Spirit does not make such mistakes. The early church fathers thought that what was happening here was Joel's prophecy was actually fulfilled at the time of Pentecost. They also uh, cite the destruction by Rome in 70 AD as a recognition of that fulfillment, that the judgment was brought upon Israel, the judgment warned about in Joel. Others say that it is a partial fulfillment of Joel and that the rest will take place at Christ's return. Still others say that Acts 2 was a a pre-fulfillment. That is, it it set the stage. It gave the preliminary events that were necessary for the complete fulfillment of Joel's prophecy at a later time. Some say Peter is quoting Joel 2 as an illustration or an analogy. That what was happening at Pentecost was, was only similar to events described in Joel. That it was a picture you're getting a feel for here we got the Nordian Gordian knot happening here, don't we? The bark has hardened pretty well, too. Can't begin to tell you how many books and, and papers and, and commentaries have been written to try to untie this knot and to explain what's going on here. Well, I'm not claiming to be Alexander the Great of biblical scholars today, but I, I want us to have a look at this problem because it's important for us to understand. How is the Old Testament, when references are made to it in the New Testament, how do we interpret those? How are we to understand those? There's many, many different quotes, I think over 400 Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. How do we address them, particularly when passages like this, which are related to prophecy, come up? And along the way, too, as we look at this passage as well, we'll discover that Peter, and he quoting from Joel, he's also talking about a wonderful, wonderful blessing that was predicted by the prophet that we allowed and get to take uh, benefit and participate in today. Now to understand what's going on here in Acts, we first need to understand what Joel was saying in the context of his prophecy. Because a common mistake in Bible study is to import modern ideas or to import New Testament thoughts into Old Testament passages. But we first need to understand what well, What was the person in the Old Testament intending to communicate to those who were listening to them or to those whom he was writing to? We have to discover what the original author intended for his original audience to understand. That's the foundation to interpretation, right? We just went through Ephesians, did we not? Who did Paul write that letter to? Church at Ephesus, right? To the Ephesian believers back in the first century. How about the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? To whom did he write those? I heard some. I think I heard it. Who were those written to originally? To the Jews, right? The people and the time, people in Israel in the time of the Exodus, and then Joel. Joel is speaking directly to the people of his day, to the people of Judah, who had been hit by a massive plague of locusts. I mean, that's, this is fundamental to understanding any sort of communication. I mean, right now, I'm speaking to you who live in Southern California in the early 21st century, right? And I'm, I'm trying to use a, a language that we all understand and, and grammar and, and try to use things that, we would, that would, you would understand from me. I use illustrations. I, I refer to events or books or things like that that would be familiar to you, right? So I'm attempting to communicate to you here in this century at this time and to these people, not to someone in the past or to someone in the future. And it's the same for Scripture. 
Now, this doesn't mean that the books that we have in the Bible are irrelevant for us. Oh, that was for somebody else way back when. No, not at all. Right? Romans 15, 4 says that what was written earlier was written for our instruction so that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. No, it's intended for us as well. God has, in His Word, communicated timeless truths that apply to all people in all circumstances for all time. But to understand what those principles are, we need to understand the situation in which they were first applied. We need to understand the context in which they were unveiled or revealed. And so, to tackle the Gordian knot of Acts 2, we must first understand the author that Peter was quoting from. And we need to understand who he was speaking to and what the context was of his message. And that author, again, is Joel. And so to understand what Peter's saying in Acts 2, we need to understand what Joel was saying in his prophecy in the book of Joel. And then we can consider how it applies to us today. So let's go back to Joel 2 to discover first, what was Joel talking about? What was the context in which he gave these words that Peter quotes? Again, what was the circumstance that was taking place, that took place in Joel's day? Who remembers? Right? Plague of locusts had come, right? Plague of locusts had devastated the land. People of Judah, probably around the middle of the 9th century B.C., had experienced a great swarm and, and the vegetation was lost. The people were demoralized and discouraged. And in chapter 1, if you remember, Joel, Joel recounts... I keep calling him Joe. Joel. Joe. Joel. See, I did it again. Joel. Joel recounts what happened. He recounts the, the, the loss of vegetation, the scorching of the land, and everything that took place as a result of the locusts and then of the drought as well. But if you notice in this message, rather than saying, you know what, and everything's going to be okay. There's a silver lining in every cloud. It's all going to turn out fine. See, Joel didn't do that, did he? Actually, he said, you know, this is bad. But things are going to get worse. They're going to get a lot worse. Then we have the warning that he gives that one day God will return in judgment. And why does he give this warning? Why does Joel say things are going to get worse? What was his intent in giving this message to the people in his day? He wanted them to repent, right? They had been in, in rebellion against God. They had gone after other idols. They had committed many uh, immoral and wicked acts within their day. And so God sent this plague in order to get their attention so that he could call them to repentance, a, a genuine rending of the heart, a, to come to God with a broken heart, a contrite heart, one desiring to be right with God to turn from their sin. And then in verses 18 to 27 of chapter 2, God says that if they would repent as a nation, that He would restore them, that He would restore the land, that He would restore their dignity, and that He would restore their relationship with Him. Now, if you look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, uh, remember I mentioned last week that there was a significant difference in how they're translated? Some English translations uh, say here, they translate it in, in the verbs in the future. They say the Lord will be jealous and will have pity and will answer and say. NAS and the NIV do that. But then there are some English translations such as the ESV and the ASV that say the Lord became jealous and had pity. That the Lord answered and said. Past tense. Uh, in fact, the New American Standard, if you notice in your margin, gives this as an alternate translation. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a significant difference. Is it future or past? Did it happen or will it happen? Which is it? 
And it's important to understand this because of the fact that it will inform us about the verses that follow and how they fit within the time frame being discussed here in Joel. And what makes this so difficult, you might wonder, well, why would one translation do past and the other future? Do these guys not take Hebrew 101? I mean, come on. Well, what makes the difference is that Hebrew verbs, or what makes it difficult is that Hebrew verbs are not primarily temporal like they are in English. That is, they don't primarily focus on the time element like the verbs do in English. In fact, in Hebrew, verbs are mainly dealing with aspect and perspective. There are many examples where verb forms that are normally translated in the past tense or can be translated in another tense in the future. For example, um, we looked at an Obadiah several weeks ago. There was one example of this where Obadiah was a prophecy regarding the nation of Edom, right? The, in the future that Edom would be uh, dealt with for how uh, they had treated Israel. And in that prophecy, Obadiah often used uh, what are called Hebrew perfects, verbs that are normally translated in the past tense. And yet we know that they needed to be translated in the future tense because Obadiah was speaking of a future event. And so here we have a situation that was similar. Confusing, right? This is what makes Hebrew translation a challenge. And here in Joel 2, we have a similar situation. In Joel 2, 18 and 19, we have a, another verb form that's called the wayiktal for you Hebrew scholars out there. And this verb form is normally used in narratives and it's normally translated in the past tense because it's describing events. This happened and then this happened and then this happened. Well, here in Joel, they're used as well. And that's why some translations, like the ESV, take it as past tense. They say the Lord became jealous, and the Lord had pity. Now, what would that do to what the verses that follow? It would suggest that they were an historical event, that they already happened, that God did restore them, and thus they must have repented then, because that was what God said He would do if they, if uh, He would restore them if they did. But these verbs that are here in verses 18 and 19, should be translated as future. There are several reasons why. God was simply describing here what would happen if they repented, like like they were admonished to do in the previous verses. I say this because, for one thing, we have to recognize something about Joel. Joel was one sermon, one message, one unit of thought. It really could all be in quotes, if you will. For Joel was delivering a message to the people of Judah in the wake of the tragedy that had taken place in their land. And he goes from the beginning in 1 1 through all the way through 321, delivering that same sermon to the delivering one sermon to the people of Judah in his day. There aren't any interruptions, no narrative stops where he interjects uh, some thoughts like a narrator. This is basically a quotation of his sermon. The whole book should really, as I said, be in quotes. Verse 18 isn't an interjection of how God did respond. Rather, it's just part of Joel's message as he's continuing to tell them, if you repent, then God would restore you. Also, verses 18 and 19, if they were some kind of an interjection by a narrator, by Joel, by the author, you would have expected him to also have mentioned the people did repent, right? If he's going to make a narrative comment, he would probably have said that as well. But he didn't because it wasn't part of a narration. It was part of his same one sermon. Also, too, the basic function of these Wayaktal verbs is sequential. That is, like I said, in narratives, they talk about one event and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And that's what's happening here in Joel. They're being used in the same way. That is, if you would repent, then this would be the next thing that would take place. God would restore you. 
Also, too, if you look at verses 19 and 26 and 27 of chapter 2, God promised there three separate and distinct times that the people would never again be put to shame, that they would never be made a reproach among the nations. Yet has that happened? It hasn't yet, right? Israel was taken into exile by the Babylonians. She was subjected to Roman rule for centuries. She was devastated eventually by Rome in 70 A.D. And there was a holocaust of World War II. Now, all of this is to say that I think the New American Standard and NIV got it right when they translated verse 18 as, Then the Lord will be jealous. Then He will have pity. Because, again, that communicates that verses 19 to 27 are conditional upon their repentance. So why does this matter? Well, for one thing, I want to thank you because this has been therapeutic for me to kind of let this all out. (laughs) These verses gave me no end of grief the last few weeks. They're very difficult. I had to to call in some some, uh, Hebrew, uh, Hebrew giants and ask them what was going on here. But seriously, though, you know, this, I think at least it should show us, for one thing, that translation is not a simple task. It's not, well, this Hebrew word always equals this English word, no matter what. We have to understand the context. There are subtleties that that exist, so we must understand what is going on in the book overall. But more importantly, it's, it's critical to understand the time frame of verses 18 to 27 because they lead into verses 28 to 32, the text we're focused on this morning and we need to understand that 18 to 27 haven't happened yet and so verses 28 and following are something yet future that will happen once the nation of israel is restored completely because of their repentance verse 28 begins with a hebrew word that's a a word of transition it's often translated it will come to pass or uh, it will happen or then it will be it marks a transition of events again, is yet future to the verses that were before it. And actually, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, verses 28 to 32 are a separate chapter. They're Joel chapter 3. So I think we see uh, as understanding that they were, this is a, a, a transition. But in any event, look at Joel 2.28 again. I want to read the verses Peter quoted, but read them again in their context in Joel. Beginning of verse 28, God says this, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered, will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. That should sound very similar. In these verses here, we see God makes a unilateral promise. He says, after this, that is, after God's material restoration in verses 19 to 27, He would bring a spiritual restoration. A restoration He describes in verses 28 through 32. The phrase is in those verses, in those days in verse 29. And before the great and awesome day of the Lord in verse 31, indicates the time frame here of these events is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, something that Joel gives much more detail of in the very next chapter. And so here in verses 28 to 32, they they take on an eschatological flavor. That is an end times 
flavor. Breaking down these verses, we can see there's three sections here. The first is in verses 28 and 29 that describe the nature of the spiritual restoration. Verses 30 and 31 describe the accompanying signs at the time of the restoration. And then verse 32 gives the results of the restoration. Now, what is the key event in this restoration? If you look at verses 28 and 29, Joel repeats it. He says it at the beginning of verse 28, and then he says it again at the end of verse 29. What is it? All right, wake up now. I will pour out, pour forth my spirit, right? Now, who is that? Who is he talking about here? Who is the spirit? God, the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, The third person of the Trinity, And to remember from our time in Ephesians, we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit several different times and the importance that He plays within our lives. He is vital to our salvation. He's vital to our sanctification. He is vital to our fellowship with one another and with God Himself. And here He is uh, described as being poured out. The Holy Spirit is uh, really the relational connection between God and man. He allows that to happen. The imagery here in verse 28 of the Spirit being poured out upon the people, it echoes back to verse 23 if you look there, and he describes the rain being poured out upon the land as a part of God's restoration. The picture is just as the land would be immersed in water to produce a physical harvest, so too would God's people be immersed by His Spirit or in His Spirit to produce a spiritual harvest. Now this imagery of being poured out it doesn't mean that the holy spirit is an inanimate substance or he's some uh, uh, mystical or impersonal power he's a person right he's a person just as jesus christ is a person just as god the father is a person i think this imagery is simply meant to communicate that that the abundance and the vitality being poured forth by the coming of the holy spirit just like rain would do upon the land I think he's really emphasizing what he just said in verse 27, that God would dwell among his people. And this would just show that he's going to do it in a dramatic and intimate way. This future outpouring of the Holy Spirit wasn't just described here in Joel. In fact, it's mentioned in several other places in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, in Zechariah, and in Isaiah. They all predict the coming of the Holy Spirit upon people of Israel. But it's interesting to note something here. If Joel's ministry was indeed in the ninth century around the time of King Joash, that would mean that Joel is the first prophet to describe the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. He's the first one to mention it. And looking back in verse 28, who does he say the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon? All flesh, right? All mankind, literally all flesh. Now, flesh doesn't mean all living creatures, but only people. But which people is he talking about? Talking about all people, everyone, or just a specific group? Well, if we look further and consider, who is Joel's audience here? Let's take that into account first, right? Who is he speaking to? Speaking to the Jews, right? And notice what he says in verse 28, 29, your sons and daughters, your old men, your young men. He's talking specifically to them and saying it is your descendants that will be the ones who will receive this promise. He doesn't talk about the Gentiles until a little bit later on. And so all flesh, it can, and it usually does refer to all people, but here it is exclusive within the context to the people of Israel. We see this 
several other times when the passages in Old Testament that talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, they're all in reference to coming upon Israel. In Isaiah 44, 2, God says this, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Ezekiel thirty nine twenty nine. God says, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. Again, these and, and every other Old Testament reference to the being, spirit being poured out are specific to the people of Israel in reference to the land. And Joel here, notice in verses 28 and 29, his spirit will be poured out not just on some people in Israel, but on all people in Israel, regardless of, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of social status. All of his people will receive this gift. Notice in verse 28, what will happen when the spirit is being poured out? What will that produce within the people? What are they going to do in response to that? Right? It says they will prophesy, they will see visions, they will dream dreams. All of these are related to direct revelation from God. That word prophecy, we talked about that before. It, it doesn't just mean to talk about or tell of future events. It means to tell what God has said. Now that can and often does include future events, but it's not exclusive to that. And then those parallel terms to dream dreams and to see visions, again, all in relationship to these are forms of direct revelation of God giving His Word and understanding to people directly through the work of the Spirit. Numbers 12.6, God says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. And we often see in several places in the Old Testament, when the Spirit comes upon someone that it produces a... Pro, they prophesy. They speak direct revelation from God. Uh, David said in Second Samuel 23, 2, as he was speaking in regards to the Psalms that he had written, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. Or the messengers of Saul in First Samuel 19, it says that when the, the Spirit came upon them, they prophesied. Or Numbers 11... In fact, turn to Numbers 11 for a moment to see another example here. Numbers 11. Here at the Lord's direction, this was a situation where he had come to God and he said, I can't do this, Lord. This is too much. There's too many people. I, I don't have the strength or the energy to lead them. And so God says, find some other leaders that can help you bear this burden. And so he gathered uh, 70 elders together. And in verse 25, it says that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. In fact, if you were there in Numbers 11, let's read it. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, that is Moses, and he took of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested on, upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. So apparently this was a one-time deal where God was identifying these men as leaders by bringing the Holy Spirit upon them, and then as a result they prophesied. But look at verse 26 a minute. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Madad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Madad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. You're the one that speaks for God. Don't let these guys be doing that. 
Notice what Moses says. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Interesting statement and desire of Moses. And you know what? In Joel 2, it says one day God will fulfill his wish. It says that all of his people will have the spirit upon them and all will prophesy. All will know God's will and all of his people in Israel will know what God has said and understand and apply it. That's what we see in the New Covenant. That is also given to Israel in Jeremiah 31, where God says that he would put his law within their hearts. Remember that statement? The Holy Spirit is the one who does that work. Jeremiah 31, 4 says that as a result, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. So this idea that they would understand directly from the Lord himself through the power and work of his spirit, what God desires and what they should do. Well, going back to Joel 2, if you could, let's look back at Joel 2, verse 30. God continues to speak there after promising that He would pour out His Spirit among all the people of Israel. He then says this, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. Some will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, this certainly is a change in tone. We go from verses 28 and 29 where it's speaking of this uh, joyous event that would take place where God would send His Spirit to, uh, upon them in great measure so that they would be able to, to know God's will. They would have direct revelation and prophesy and see visions. And then all of a sudden God says, Oh, and by the way, at the same time I'm going to display blood and fire and smoke. All indicators of a war happening. And that the moon will turn to blood, the sun to darkness before the great and awesome day of the Lord What's going on here? Why does he talk, one, about the coming of his spirit? And then he flips over and says, oh, by the way, that's going to come in the time period of when I bring judgment upon the world. Joel describes similar events in reference to God's coming judgment in the day of the Lord. If you remember back in Joel 2.10 and then later in Joel 3.15, he says here in verses 30 and 31 that the light of the sun will be blocked out just as it was in Egypt that the moon will be turned to blood. I don't think he means literally. I think this is figuratively. But something more than an eclipse is being described here. Joel uh, is describing supernatural events. Again, that the day would be filled with blood and fire and smoke, all depicting a scene of battle. In this type of event, it is where Joel foretells that he's heralding judgment. This is God talking about judgment that is coming. And I think, again, remember, what has been the message in this book of Joel? What has been Joel's message to the people? That God's judgment is coming. And that he sent this plague to let us know that something worse was going to come later if we don't turn to God. And I think here, even in the midst of this prophecy of something yet that is yet future, Joel or God through Joel is reminding them again that this judgment is coming. That warning continues so that the people would respond in repentance and that's in fact what we see happening in verse 32 where joel says it will come about that whoever calls upon the name of the lord will be delivered will be saved from that judgment now this phrase call upon the name of the lord it's a uh, phrase often used in the old testament and in scripture in general it's a phrase that means more than just asking for help it's not just one that's calling for aid asking god to assist it is a cry for relationship It is a cry for relationship. To call upon the name of the Lord 
speaks of a commitment to a consistent and exclusive worship of God. We see it when Abram offered worship in Genesis 13.4, or we see it when there's a description in Zephaniah 3.9 of a serving the Lord, calling upon His name. It, it describes a person, a person who has not just been delivered from judgment, but one who desires an ongoing relationship with God. Verse 32 says that those who are delivered will be on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Now, what is special about those places? Particularly in the context of Joel. Where is it God says he would dwell? In Jerusalem, Mount Zion. In fact, verse 27, right? Did he not just express his desire to dwell with his people? And in fact, the very last phrase, the very last words of Joel's prophecy at the end of chapter 3, if you look there, it says, Yahweh dwells in Zion. Now, notice um, verse 32. I want you to see there's a short phrase there toward the end of verse 32. It says, as the Lord has said. You see it there? This indicates that God made this declaration before. We're talking about here that upon Mount Zion and Jerusalem will be those who uh, escape, those who are delivered. And he says there, then, just as God had said. So somewhere before, God had made this statement. And if we look in the Old Testament, there is one other place where those exact same words were used. And it happened in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah 1.17, he gives the phrase, Upon Mount Zion will be those who escape. Which tells us Obadiah prophesied before Joel. Well, that was free. Anyway, Joel, Joel closes verse 32 with the other side of the salvation coin. Notice what it says there. Beginning of verse 32, he says what? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? But look at the last, the end of verse 32. He says, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, what's going on here? Which is it? Is one saved by calling on the Lord? Or is one saved by the Lord calling him? Even here in Joel, we're given the tension between God's sovereign choice and man's responsibility to respond. Both are equally true. Both are equally true. John six forty four. Jesus does the same thing when he says, no one can come to, the, to me except that the Father draws him. And then just a few moments later, he turns around and says, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So again, we see that God must draw man, but man must believe to both end. And we see this again in Joel. For someone to be saved means they must call out to the Lord, cry out to him in repentance, and they would be saved. And then at the same time, Joel says that God calls those for salvation. How does that work? How does that work? Well, that's for another day. I barely survived this whole issue with those verbs in verses 18. I'm not going to. But just, again, it's a reminder of this, that we bear responsibility to respond to the message of the gospel, to repent and believe. And if you do not, if you do not place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from your sin you will not be saved. At the same time, it is God is the one who draws. It is God is the one who chooses. We cannot take credit for that on our own. Both of those work together, and I don't know exactly how. But Joel, again, describes them here. Here again, we see that same tension. Okay, so let's go back Go back to Acts 2. Let's talk about where we began this morning. Flip back over there, Acts chapter 2. After seeing... 
hopefully seeing and understanding a little better Joel's message within the context of his prophecy, what then is happening here in Acts 2? Because it, I think, should be even more clear to us now that what Joel was describing is not exactly the same thing that was happening in Acts 2. Right again, the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was only upon those who believed. But Joel 2 says that the pouring out will be upon all Jews, then resulting in their salvation. In Acts 2, we don't see complete national repentance, though we do see a revival. But that's what has been called for back in Joel chapter 2. Neither has there been complete restoration that was described in Joel 2, 18 to 27. Something that was to take place prior to verses 28 to 32. Israel was still in shame, right? Under subjugation to Rome. The supernatural events, the judgments that accompany the day of the Lord is described in Joel. They haven't happened yet either at Pentecost. So when Peter says in Acts 2 verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, what's he referring to? Is this a pre-fulfillment? Is this a partial fulfillment of the prophecy? Is this an illustration? Is this an analogy? Is this a, a type? Is this a metaphor? What is Peter doing? Well, for one thing, we have to recognize Peter's not using direct fulfillment terminology here. He did back in Acts chapter 1 Verse 16, in regards to Judas, when he said the scripture had to be fulfilled. But here I think Peter's doing something different. He's looking at the bigger picture of how the situation at Pentecost relates to the message of Joel as a whole. There's an obvious link here between Pentecost and Joel 2. What is that link? What's the link? That's what happened in Acts 2. Coming of the Holy Spirit, right? In Joel 2, 28... He talks about the Spirit being poured out. So there's an obvious and direct link between the two passages. In both passages, that arrival of the Holy Spirit is accompanied by supernatural events, though they are different ones. But we have to ask the question. There's plenty of texts in the Old Testament that describe the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon His people. Why is it that Peter chose the one in Joel? He could have gone to Ezekiel. He could have gone to Isaiah, to Zechariah. And yet... He picked Joel. Why did he do that? Was he spinning around the random Old Testament reference uh, wheel in his head? Oh, it landed on Joel 2.28. Okay, that's the one I'll choose. Obviously not. Right? There was a situation taking place in Acts 2 that brought Peter's mind to the events and situations in Joel. What was the spiritual condition of the people that Peter was addressing? First, who who was Peter addressing? Acts 2.5 tells us, right? Who was the audience in Acts chapter 2? Jews, right? Jews that uh, had, had come from different nations who were residing in Jerusalem. And then, what was the spiritual condition of those people to whom Peter was speaking? Was everything all right? Were they doing all right with God? Relationships going great? No. No, they weren't. In fact, it wasn't good at all. What happened just 50 days earlier? Son of God. Jesus Christ was crucified, murdered upon a cross. And if you will remember, that murder came at the hand of the Romans under the instigation by the Jews of Jesus' day. And Peter makes that point emphatically just a couple verses later when he says, the Messiah, Jesus Christ has come, this man you nailed to a cross. There were probably people in that audience that were crying out, crucify him, crucify him, just a couple months earlier. Peter says, our Messiah came and you killed him. 
So the situation for Peter was no different than it was the situation for Joel. Back in Joel's time, the people were in rebellion, which is why God brought the plague. But now in Peter's day, one could argue that the people were in an even worse condition because they killed the Messiah. They murdered him. The worst act in human history, the greatest atrocity ever committed, came by the hands of some and most responsible for the group that Peter was talking to. They were in worse shape than those in Joel's day. They committed something even worse. And so we have the same situation confronting both prophets. Both Joel and Peter were speaking to a people that needed to hear the message of repentance before it was too late. Joel's prophecy culminates on a future promise. Really, I think the the crux or summary of his whole prophecy is in the verses that Peter quotes, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in repentance would be saved and that God would pour out His Spirit to make that happen. And that's the link that Peter draws upon to the people of his day to get them to recognize that the message delivered over 900 years ago to our ancestors doesn't just apply to them, it applies to you. Peter states the link in Acts 2.16 when he says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And the word there, this, he's not pointing back to what was spoken to the, equate the events of Pentecost here, he's pointing ahead to what Peter is about to say regarding Joel's prophecy. He does the same thing in verse 14 where he says, let this be known, and then he reveals the contents of that this in the very next verse. And that's what he's doing here in verse 16. Peter's saying, let me remind you of Joel's message. And then he quotes, again, a key part of Joel's prophecy. And this quote was intended not just to draw attention to the specific verses being quoted, but also to the message of the book book of Joel as a whole. Because any listening Jew who knew his Bible would know what the message of Joel was, that it was primarily a call of repentance to the people of God so that they would not suffer under the judgment during the day of the Lord. That person would also know that Joel said a pouring out of the Spirit will be accompanied by God's judgment upon his enemies and that the restoration of his people would be near. And so Peter's saying this essentially, look around you, look around you, folks. What do you see happening? This event that God bringing pouring out his Holy Spirit upon these people. So they're speaking in languages that they never study, but that you understand perfectly that this rushing wind that that came upon us and in great uh, in great supernatural ways. This should be telling you something. This should be sending you a message that what Joel said would happen is coming. These are simply signs and indications that Joel wasn't making anything up. The day of the Lord is going to come. Repentance is needed in order that we would not suffer judgment. What God warned our ancestors about, Joel or Peter saying, will happen to you. And I think that's why Peter includes here, In verses 19 and 20, he quotes Joel 2, 30 and 31, which talk about this judgment because he wants to remind them of that. The coming judgment that is going to take place so that they would call upon his name in repentance. And then to make sure that they don't miss the point that they were no different than their rebellious forefathers, we get uh, Peter's statement in verses 22 and 23 that they had killed the Messiah. So the supernatural entrance of the Spirit that morning in Acts chapter 2, the darkening of the skies that took place just a couple months earlier. These events should have given them pause to reflect. 
See, yeah, the day of the Lord that Joel, Joel talked about, that he warned our ancestors about, was indeed going to happen. And you know what? It's more imminent today than it was ever before. And so that call in Joel 2.12, Joel 2.12 to repent, Peter draws upon that same call in Acts chapter 2 and verse 28 when he says to his hearers, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So in other words, call upon Jesus to be saved. So take, taking this all in, I, I think the best explanation of what Peter is doing here in Acts 2 is to see that this is not uh, primarily a statement of prophetic fulfillment, but he's making a connection. He's making a connection between their two situations, the link being the Holy Spirit's arrival. But he draws their attention to Joel, not just, to, again, a focus on the specific details of the verses that he quotes, but that the main theme of Joel still applies to them. Because the people in Joel's day, and nor any time after, the people of Israel have not repented as a nation. Peter's saying, if we don't do that, if we don't repent as a nation, we kill our Messiah. If we don't repent, that same judgment will come upon us. People of Israel needed to hear the same message that Joel preached. Well, I'd like to think the Gordian knot's been cut and unraveled now, but... I probably only stirred up more questions than I answered. What should we take away from all this? What does all of this mean for us today? Well, one thing, if you're the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot take for granted the astonishing reality that you have been allowed to participate in these things that God promised to Israel. Paul said in Ephesians 2.11, you remember? He talked about in chapter 2, he says, all are dead in their trespasses and sins. He said, everybody's in the same boat. And then in verse 11, and he said, for you, Ephesian Gentiles, it's even worse if it could possibly be. He said there in verse 11 of chapter 2 that you were far off from God. You had no messianic promises, no hope of the Messiah. You were without God. You were not a part of Israel. The promises of God regarding the pouring out of the Spirit, regarding the the new covenant, those were given to Israel, not to you. But as Romans 11 describes, the Jews' rejection of the Messiah, it opened the door for the Gentiles to be, as Paul described it, grafted in so that the promises given to his people we could participate in now. Romans 10.13, Paul quotes from Joel 2.32 when he says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And there he applied it to both Jew and Gentile. He's saying Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah that came for his people, has come to save all. All who would repent and believe Jesus has come for, Jesus has given his life for, that they may be saved. We get to participate in that. We get to experience that. We get to enjoy the blessings of that salvation. Because the spirit that Jesus promised, who Jesus promised to send, would also be given to us. Speaking of Jesus, Peter said in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we may be saved. Which name was he talking about there, brothers and sisters? Jesus. Jesus. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus will be saved. Only in Jesus can anyone be saved, right? Only by expressing a genuine desire to turn from your sin, to place your faith in Him alone, can you be forgiven, right? 
only by committing your life to worship and love and following Jesus can you be redeemed. Only by seeking joy and satisfaction, not in earthly pleasures, but in Christ alone can you be saved. And with that salvation, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who first came at Pentecost and the church was born. And now anyone who believes receives the same Holy Spirit to dwell within him or her. And even though God's promise to pour out His Spirit upon Israel, all of Israel has not yet happened. Even though, as Paul said in Romans eleven twenty six, that all Israel will be saved has not yet happened. Even though as Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah thirteen nine that all of God's people will call upon His name. Even though that has not yet happened, any who turn to Jesus Christ are given the privilege to participate and to experience the blessing of those promises now. It's an amazing gift. We overlook it too much. We overlook it too much. God has given His Spirit to do His work in you, the church. Again, let's remember back to when we look through Ephesians and consider what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. How important He is. How vital He is. Only through the Holy Spirit could you even be saved. You know, if the Holy Spirit was not here, you would not have been able to understand the gospel so as to repent and believe. That was because He opened your eyes. Only through the Spirit are you adopted as God's child. Galatians talks about that. By the Spirit we cry out to God as Abba Father. We are adopted as sons. Only through Him are you placed within the body of Christ. He is the one who links us together in one body. Only through the Spirit are you sealed for eternity. Only by Him are you enabled to serve your fellow believers. By Him you are given a gift with which to use to build up others in the body. Only by the Holy Spirit can you battle sin. Do you realize that? If the Holy Spirit wasn't in work in you, you would have no strength, no resources to pursue holiness in your life. He is the one who enables you towards sanctification. Only through the Holy Spirit can you understand God's Word. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about that. Only through the Holy Spirit are you enabled and strengthened to apply it. There's so much that we are indebted to the Holy Spirit for. There are many things attributed to Him that aren't true, but there are many things that really should be attributed to Him that we forget about. Praise God for sending the Spirit in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit that You have given to all who repent and believe. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You came and made a way that we could know You and that You sent Your Spirit as promised so that we could live the life that You have called us to, so that we could be connected to You, to the Father, through His work in our lives, through His dwelling within us. Lord, may You use, Lord, these words from Joel, from Peter, Lord, to remind us and be grateful and thankful for this incredible gift that you have given. We pray in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.